0: Well, our scripture lesson for the sermon this evening is in the book of the prophet Micah, and chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 6 through 8. I'm thinking as a have a title for the sermon in the bulletin here is the meaning of sacrifices and maybe I should have had it something like the meaningfulness of sacrifices or uh, because what we read in this scripture lesson has more to do with the attitude that we bring as we come to worship the Lord and so uh, what we 're not talking so much tonight about what the sacrifice is pointed to as in our need for a savior and and uh, how Christ has fulfilled these things and we 'll touch on that, but more about uh, what we do as we come to worship the Lord what God says about that in the old covenant as he uh, spoke of sacrifices, and so we read this evening Micah. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, this is the word that God gave to the prophet Micah, and so it is infallibly recorded by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. So we have here before us the very word of the true God. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. I pray that... The words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable in the sight of the Lord, in Jesus' name. The prophet Micah ministered during the reign, or the reigns, I should say, plural, of the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. All we know about Micah is he's known as Micah of Moresheth, uh and this is the uh, era in which he uh, ministered. So this would be roughly uh, the middle of the 8th century, about 750 B.C. down to about 700 B.C. Well this was a time, as you read in the Old Testament scriptures, that was marked by great unfaithfulness in the northern kingdom of Israel, For this was a period a couple of centuries after the division of the kingdom uh, originally we know that that there was the, the nation of Israel settled in the land and uh, after the time of the judges the lord gave them at their request a king king Saul and so there was from that point on a kingdom of Israel and uh, after Saul came David and after David came Solomon and after Solomon, his son Rehoboam was the last king of the United Kingdom of Israel. For shortly after uh, he began his reign, the people of Israel came to him and asked if he would uh, re- if he would lighten the burden that his father had laid upon them and relieve them some. And we know that Solomon. Uh, did not always reign wisely, So the Lord, though the Lord had given him wisdom. We'll talk about that, uh, touch on that a bit tonight. But, but we know that, that he did uh, turn to the worship of some other gods for a time in his life, uh, after having married foreign wives, and that the Lord had said that he would break up the kingdom after Solomon's day because of this sin of Solomon's. And his son, Rehoboam, uh, was uh, asked by the people to lighten some of the burden that Solomon perhaps unwisely had laid upon them. And Solomon's advisors, the older men, told Rehoboam, well, uh, if you just lighten their burden, that sounds reasonable. Then these people will serve you and they will serve you gladly. And he listened, rather than listening to them, to his contemporaries, he listened to the young men who told him what he wanted to hear and they said no I'm paraphrasing tell tell those people that you're the king and you call the shots and so uh, you'll do what you please and if they thought your father was hard on them you'll be worse uh, your his little your little finger will seem like your father's thigh he chastised them with whips you chastise them with scorpions and so he he listened to his younger advisors and this resulted in the, the northern tribes of Israel separating from the kingdom, becoming their own kingdom, and uh, Judah being the kingdom mainly of the house of David thereafter. So there are two kingdoms in this period. Well, coming down then to the 8th century BC, the Assyrians, as God's instruments of chastisement, about 720 BC, destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And they troubled Judah, for Judah was not without sin either. So the southern Israelite kingdom was greatly harassed by the Assyrians and rescued only by the Lord's intervention during the reign of the godly king Hezekiah. Now in Judah, though Jotham, King Jotham during the ministry era of the prophet Micah, uh, Jotham was a faithful man. Second Chronicles 22.7 tells us that during his reign, the people still followed corrupt practices. They had gone astray and uh, Jotham was not able to reform the people altogether. Well, his son Ahaz reigned after him and he gave himself, Ahaz did, over to idolatry and abominable practices. In Second Chronicles 28, we're told that he made metal images for Baal and even sacrificed some of his own children to false gods. This is how bad things got. The Hezekiah, who reigned after him, did away with the idolatrous practices that were openly done. As Second Kings 18 tells us, he even went so far as taking down the high places. This is one of the problems that Chronicles tells us happened over and over again, was that even when there was a godly king, he did much that was good, but they said, but he did not take down the high places. Well, what's meant by that? The high places were places that were, uh, in many cases, literally high, often on top of hilltops or a built-up area in A town. These were places sometimes people, Bible scholars, the Hebrew scholars, think the word should just be translated as shrine, a place of worship. And of course these were the kinds of places that the pagans worshipped their false gods. But quite often what we find in the Old Testament is that Israel is worshipping the Lord in the high places. So they're worshipping the right God, but they're not worshipping him the way that he said to do. In fact, in Deuteronomy 12 the end of the chapter he explicitly told them through Moses not to do that not to go into the land and look at the way that the heathens were worshiping their gods and thus decide they would worship the Lord that way he said you'll only worship me the way that I command and so Hezekiah took down the high places in Judah and when the Assyrians come and threaten the people of Jerusalem they They think that that's ammunition that they can use against Hezekiah. They they say, don't think that the Lord is going to save you. Your king has taken down all of his worship places. He's taken down the high places where he was worshipped, which of course was what the Lord actually wanted. Hezekiah even had to destroy the bronze serpent made by Moses in the wilderness, something that was legitimate, but the people were using it illegitimately. They were worshipping it now as an idol. And so he had to grind it to dust. And that's a good lesson for us for another time. To think of how, what we need to do to deal with idolatry. Even good things when we make them into idols, we need to get rid of. Now what Hezekiah couldn't do is he was carrying out these reforms, and he did a great deal that was good. What he couldn't do was change people's hearts. So that when he died, his son Manasseh apostatized fell away from the Lord, though he later had a, brief, uh, had a repentance of his own, but it was so t- near the end of his reign and so brief that it didn't have any apparent effect on the people. But the people seemed content to follow Manasseh when he left the Lord. So in our scripture reading, and I might just mention as an aside, the Bible doesn't tell us, but uh, Hebrew tradition says that Manasseh put the prophet Isaiah to death by having him sawn in two. So our scripture reading here takes place in the period uh, leading up to uh, ending with the, uh, the reign of Hezekiah. And Micah is living in a time when the northern kingdom is incredibly faithless and the southern kingdom has a lot of problems even though they have a couple of good kings. And In this time of religious unfaithfulness, Through Micah, the Lord points out the importance of coming to the Lord's temple and not doing it just with the the outward forms of the worship, but with the right attitude of heart. Even the legitimate sacrifices done according to God's word are meaningless without a changed heart. As we read in verse 6 of Micah 6, With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come with him? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now those are things that are consistent with what God commanded in terms of his sacrifices in his law. So is it the legitimate sacrifices themselves that please the Lord? Micah asks. If the people are going through the motions of God-revealed religion, Yes, we should worship the Lord the way he has revealed, but if we're only going through the motions of it, well, at the same time as in the days of Micah, the people were worshiping the Lord, they were at least engaging in the public worship of God in some ways that he had commanded, but at the same time they were worshiping him in other fashions that he had not commanded, or they were worshiping idols alongside of him, or they were making even the artifacts of their sojourn in the wilderness, legitimate things that God had given them, into objects of worship themselves, if they pretend to worship the Lord while mistreating their fellow Israelites and others, that's a major problem in the era of the prophets, can the legitimate sacrifices do anything for them? There is no way to purchase God's favor Not even with legitimate religion, and certainly not with exaggerated offerings. So not even with the legitimate God-revealed religion can we actually force the Lord's hand. Micah asks, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? So he moves from from the God-commanded kinds of sacrifices now to an exaggeration. To uh, something where this is something that mankind is prone to. That we think that we can get God's attention by extravagant things. Worship the Lord with elaborate ritual of our own making. Rather than in the simplicity that he has revealed. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? I'm reminded here of King Solomon. I mentioned this a little bit earlier in 1 Kings 3. This is when Solomon gets his wisdom that he does depart from later in life. But Solomon goes to Gibeon, which is called the Great High Place in 1 Kings 3, to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, to give him a little credit, this was a time of religious confusion. There were lots of high places. Gibeon in his day was known as the great high place. We know the high places were not legitimate ways to worship the Lord. But here was a little bit of confusion. The Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem. But the tabernacle that Moses had constructed, the original bronze altar, were still at Gibeon. And so Solomon had gone, apparently, to the tabernacle. And he had this practice, we were told, and here's where we... Uh, see some addition to God's word that was that Solomon was engaging in. He had this practice of offering elaborate sacrifices of his own devising. <clears throat> so, kind of like Micah asking, "Here, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil?" First Kings three four says Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Then the the form of that verb used to offer. That's a good translation of it because the the form of the verb uh, communicates that this was an ongoing practice, not just something he did once, like Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. He used to offer a thousand burnt offerings. So he would come and offer a thousand burnt offerings and then come again another time and offer a thousand burnt offerings and again and again. If you know the story, you know what happened next. Solomon stayed the night at Gibeon after engaging in this elaborate sacrifice of his own devising. And the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Ask what I shall give you. This is part of his fulfillment of his promises he made to David, that he would bless his son. And we know, to make the longer story short, that Solomon asked for wisdom. Being granted wisdom from God, as well as many other blessings, Solomon rose up the next day, and you might think, well, he's now going to give a thank offering to the Lord. So he's, gonna, he's there at the great high place. Why not give a thank offering to the Lord right there? Maybe this one deserves another 10,000 burnt offerings, or another 1,000 burnt offerings, I should say. But instead of doing that, what's he do? He goes back to Jerusalem. He goes straight back to Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he offers sacrifices according to the law of Moses in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. God is not pleased when we invent our own ways to worship him, and he cannot be bought off with elaborate and extravagant sacrifices. No matter how valuable to us, whether it's thousands of rams or rivers of oil, or even our beloved children. Think of that, the warning that Moses gives in, in Deuteronomy 12, when the Lord says, Do not look at the way these people worship me and think that sounds like a good way to worship God. He says, for they even sacrifice their own children. When people start down the road of worshiping in their own way, they end up worshiping in more and more sinful ways. And Micah asks here again, this is facetiously, I think. He asks, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And remember Micah is living in a time when King Ahaz did that very thing. Sacrificing his children to a false god as if giving up his own children was going to buy him something. Now Micah though on his own part is being absurd here. He knows that the Lord won't... Accept that kind of sacrifice, and he's called such sacrifices abominations. He's likely pointing to the wickedness that's going on directly around him, like with that with King Ahaz. Leviticus eighteen twenty-one and twenty verses one through five enlist the death penalty for child sacrifice. Micah knows that this isn't something that God actually wants him to do. He's using. uh, He's using hyperbole here he's being uh, exaggerating for uh, purpose Deuteronomy twelve thirty one says any attempt to worship the Lord in such a way is an abominable thing that the Lord hates so this isn't going to please the Lord whatsoever none of these things please the Lord what pleases the Lord is a changed heart in Hebrews 11 we read apart from faith there is no pleasing God And when we have a changed heart, displayed in a life of repentance and obedience to His moral law and love, then we know that when we worship Him rightly, He accepts that worship. Not because of the form of the worship, but because of the heart that is behind it. Yes, the heart that, that loves the Lord is going to want to worship Him rightly, But it isn't the form of the worship that purchases anything that pleases God whatsoever. It's Christ who has purchased our salvation. And our worship that is pleasing to him is that which is done in love for him. Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice, to do justly. It's from the verb to govern or to judge. It means to make righteous judgments and to govern as God would govern. If you're somebody in a position of authority, you govern as God would govern. Or all of us have authority over things in our lives. We govern ourselves the way God would govern to do justly, to love kindness, to love mercy. The word is actually chesed in the Hebrew. It's God's loving kindness, God's mercy. The kind of word that's translated into the Greek as agape, the self-sacrificial love. We reflect the Lord's character. That's what God wants of us. And then to walk humbly with your God, literally to be humble, to walk with your God. We cannot walk with God if we are not humble. If we are puffed up and full of ourselves, if we think that I am righteous of myself, no, we're not walking with God. When we note, like the publican who came in Jesus' parable to the temple and beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's what the Lord wants of us in our worship. We might think, is it humble to make up our own rules or to follow his? Is it humble to trust our own wisdom or to trust his? You know how many times when I was in the liberal context where I would hear people accuse those who want to worship God rightly or to serve God according to his word as being arrogant? Particularly, uh, you're arrogant if you claim that you know the one way to the lord and i would agree it would certainly be arrogant if i were to say well i have learned a way to the lord through jesus and since i'm so smart that must be the only way and the rest of you had better follow jesus too or that or you will be condemned that would be arrogant But when the Lord himself comes to us in human flesh and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who is the arrogant one? The one who says, I will submit to that. I will believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about and I'll I'll come to the Lord through him. Or the one who says, no, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. There are other ways to God. I'm going to find another one. Is it humble to worship the Lord our way or His way? Is it humble to go our own way or to go God's way? So God says, be humble to walk with your God. Spiritual darkness caused the Israelites to offer much except what the Lord actually required. A contrite spirit. Or as He puts it here, to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord actually required a changed heart from which right actions freely flowed. Alfred Edersheim's words about sacrifices in the temple can help us think about having the right attitude as we worship the Lord, particularly as in a few weeks' time we'll be uh, coming to worship the Lord with the Lord's Supper in our morning worship. It's two weeks from now. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, he says, were symbolic and typical, and out, an outward observance without any real inward meaning is only a ceremony. But a rite which has a present spiritual meaning is a symbol, and if besides, it also points to future reality, conveying at the same time by anticipation the blessing that is yet to appear, it is a type. Thus the Old Testament sacrifices were not only symbols, nor yet merely predictions by fact, as prophecy is prediction by word, but they already conveyed to the believing Israelites the blessing that was, that was to flow from the future reality to which they pointed. So in other words, he's saying, uh, if they only were uh, pointing, or if they were only predictions in example, the way that that's uh, of the coming Christ, the way that they were, or the, that the prophecies were predictions by word, He said they would just be symbols. But they actually conveyed a blessing to the person who came sacrificing with the right heart. And it was a blessing that was purchased by Christ in the future. That Christ was yet to purchase for them. They had efficacy only because Christ would come and make them efficacious. He would fulfill what they pointed to. So Edersheim says, Hence the service of the letter and the work righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees ran directly contrary to this hope of faith and spiritual view of sacrifices, which placed all on the level of sinners to be saved by the substitution of another to whom they pointed. So as we come to worship the Lord, of course we don't come with sacrifices like people did in Micah's day, but we come to worship Him the way that God has commanded. And in a couple of weeks, we'll be coming to the Lord's table, again, with a sacrament that the Lord has commanded for our era. The Lord's Supper, of course, like these sacrifices in the Old Covenant, points to our Savior, who in our place suffered for our sins, and will come again. And they will it points then to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let our response as we seek to worship the Lord rightly and with a right heart, let our response be that we would be doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Let's pray. Indeed, O Lord, cause us to govern our lives by Your Word. Cause us to be self-sacrificing, to be humble to walk with You, Grant that our worship might be true, not only because we are doing it the way that you have commanded, but that because we are doing it with hearts that love you. And as we engage in the sacrament in a couple of weeks, we pray that it would point us to Jesus, and keep us depending on him and glorifying him with godly lives, for we pray in his name. Amen.